Welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 232nd episode, our returning guest is Eli Merritt. You first heard from Eli Merritt on episode 229 of the podcast. A political historian at Vanderbilt, Eli Merritt has written about the dangers of demagogues to democracy for the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Seattle Times, Chicago Tribune, Newsday, and Philadelphia Inquirer, among dozens of other news outlets. He writes a Substack newsletter called American Commonwealth that explores the origins of the United States' political discontents and solutions to them. His book, How to Save Democracy, Advice and Inspiration from 95 World Leaders, is a collection of 423 quotations derived from the First International Summit for Democracy and was published March 14th by Amplify Publishing Group. And his new book, Disunion Among Ourselves, The Perilous Politics of the American Revolution, was published June 4th by the University of Missouri Press. And now on to the show. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. Excellent. Are we live? We're live. <laughs> All right. Yes, I, I enjoyed our talk, uh, I guess, a couple of months ago. So here we go again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, of course, I finished your uh, last book that we discussed last time, and I'm, I'm now in the process of reading uh, your new book. Uh, but go ahead and uh, you, I think mentioned this a little bit on the last podcast. Uh, about what it was, but if you could just kind of give a little bit of an overview for people that uh, aren't familiar with this book you had that just came out. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, this is a history book that was many years in the making called Disunion Among Ourselves, The Perilous Politics of the American Revolution. And in some ways, uh, what it does is it uh, sort of tackles some of the things that we've gotten the most wrong about our understanding of the founding period. So the book focused on, on the period of the American Revolution, uh, but, the, but the concept of, that I'm about to describe is true of um, also the years after the American Revolution. Uh, and that is we've tended to think that their greatest fears was foreign uh, involvement or foreign invasion, when in fact the greatest fears of the founders really starting in 1774 at the First Continental Congress was the absolute peril of disunion uh, among themselves, or disunion leading to um, civil wars. If we just look uh, for a moment at the, the American Revolution alone, what we find is that historians have taught for more than two centuries that what the founders feared most was the power and might of the royal army and navy. And again, what they feared much more than that, in fact, they felt if they could remain unified and, and, and cooperate and compromise and not break apart, they felt a great, greater, great sense of confidence that they could eventually win the war of independence. But to say just a little more, um, specifically what they feared was that something would happen. There would be a major breakdown, a political issue within the legislative issue within the Congress. And so that would lead to one or more states to secede from the union. And then what would happen next? That one or more states would form a separate confederation and then they would all break apart into separate confederations which we, sounds pretty uh, dreadful to us today, but in fact, if they could have successfully broken into separate confederations, they likely would have. The problem was if they broke into separate confederations, they were going to fall into civil wars about uh, finances and commerce and most of all about land. Um, so this is also, I'll just sort of end by saying this, that uh, this dynamic we're looking at of fear of disunion and civil wars 
is also one of the explanatory models behind why the founders perpetuated slavery. So maybe we can talk some more about that because I'm actually most recently thinking that Americans currently really need to talk about slavery in a complex manner. I think it would be healing for us if we could come to some consensus at some point about that question. Why did the founders perpetuate slavery, even though it was so uh, anathema to everything they believed in, in terms of human rights and liberty? Yeah, totally. That's a great point. And, um, you know, I, I, the more I think about it, it's amazing that they were able to get together in the first place, given how many different interests and, you know, uh, demographics and economics and how much do we blame them for just baking in the upcoming civil war just decades later? It was seemed like it was almost inevitable the way they had set it up. It's like they, the faulty, you know, it was faulty from the beginning. It seemed like they were going to have to decide it and they really just pushed it off for another day, but they still had to eventually deal with it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, really, Rob, I think that's not a bad way to put it, is that the founders, when it came to slavery, and, and, and before the Philadelphia Convention of 1787, also the slave trade, that they kicked the can down the road. But that's, that's what I'm most interested in, is discovering what way will, I think that is true. The question is, why did they kick the can down the road? And so let's, let's look at that question of the perpetuation of slavery more. Um, again, just to clarify, the dynamic that uh, was in place was uh, there were 13 colonies that became 13 states in 1776. If during that time or even after the American Revolution, one or more of the northern states had come along and said, you know, we've won this war of uh, independence together. And obviously, look here at the Declaration of Independence that Thomas Jefferson wrote. And, it, you know, it says all men are created equal. So. I think now is the time for us as a collective of 13 to come up with some sort of at least a gradual plan for the emancipation of slaves and, a, and an end to the slave trade. If that had happened, we know pretty certainly from the evidence and threats that were made during the years of the Continental Congress that, that uh, South Carolina, frankly, I think it's well, well agreed, South Carolina would have led the charge and would have seceded from the Union. And again, to explain, that would have led to the formation of a Southern Confederation, most likely, uh, and, and that would have led um, to civil wars over the disputed finances, commerce, and land, and most significantly, the land that existed outside, uh, across the Appalachian Mountains, the Trans-Appalachian West, which basically doubled the size of the country after the Civil War. Pardon me, after the War of Independence. Um, so what we find in why the founders perpetuated slavery, why did they kick the can down the road? There, there are at least three explanatory models, and one is the one that's quite well known to us, which we can just call, you know, the white supremacist or systemic racism um, explanatory model. I won't say more about that. I think people understand that. The other that's well known and discussed frequently is the economic explanatory model or the economic paradigm for understanding why the founders perpetuated slavery. The one that I introduced in the book is, is that, that we've been speaking about. It's called the survivalist interpretation. So... Again, according to that, they kicked the can down the road because in some ways they had no other bloodless alternative. In the book, I call it a devil's bargain that if they had tried to, as a collective, now this, many of the states, northern states did, did take action against slavery, obviously. If they tried as a federal collective to make any radical change to the status of the slave trade or slavery, then we would have had this cascade of events of civil war. So in the devil's bargain, these white founders um, made the decision uh, in favor of their own self-preservation, 
rather than the preservation of the liberties and freedoms and, and rights and lives of enslaved people. Rob, you there? Yes, sorry. I lost the unmute button. Sorry. <laughs> There's a very loud bird that's chirping right outside my window, and I, just, I didn't want that to be in the background if I could possibly help it. Yeah, leave it. If it comes back, leave it. It's not, it's not, a, it's not bad uh, background music. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, but uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about that I found surprising, which I wasn't aware of before I started reading your book, uh, was that there was a plan to basically, it was called the Galloway plan, right? And the uh, guy perpetuating it basically was inventing home rule without calling it that. Could you talk a little bit about that and why that didn't shake out? Uh, yeah, well, that just, that makes me think to talk about, uh, you know, one of the dominant themes throughout the book, and that is just the question of constitutions. And that's another great feat of the period of the American Revolution that I think is dramatically underplayed both by academics and in general by the, by the general public. And there, what's so fascinating is how hard it was for the founders to actually get to the place of a constitution and actually adopt it. So that was, of course, finally called the Articles of Confederation. It was actually, it had a longer name. The actual name was Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. And it wasn't adopted until the 11th hour, just before we, we knew we were going to win the revolution, the Battle of Yorktown. So it wasn't adopted until 1781. So the Galloway Constitution uh, is in some ways quite less important than the uh, many other constitutions that were proposed that led to the Articles of Confederation. Because in the Galloway Constitution, um, someone who later became a loyalist named Joseph Galloway, <clears throat> he deeply believed that, that as, as other loyalists did, that breaking away from the British Empire into independence was one of the most ludicrous, crazy, nutty things that any of the colonists could be thinking about. And his reason for that was on the one hand, he thought the colonies would be crushed by the, again, the, 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 the might and power of the British Army and Navy. But he also was very con concerned <clears throat> to the dominant theme of my book about this union and civil war. In this case, you'd say that independence would lead to disunion and disunion would lead to civil war. And Galloway remarkably is uh, in 1775, he succinctly predicted and warned the colonists against a particular civil war. And it was explicitly described as a North-South civil war in which at some point, the dominant Northern states will invade the Southern states. And the Southern states are weaker for many reasons, including they don't have shipping and, 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 and any history uh, with commercial ships, meaning they also can't develop a Navy. And he also explicitly said that one of the things that would help the North to defeat the South was, he called it the enemy within the bowels of the Southern states, meaning enslaved people. They would also rise up and join the Northern uh, states in order to secure their own freedom. So it's remarkable that's in 1775. In this case, he did not say that the war was being fought to preserve slavery. He did not say that the war was being fought to preserve the Union. And those were the things that were that, that Lincoln launched the war uh, to do. Um, so it's quite remarkable there. So Gall but Galloway's constitution is, um, was, was one which uh, gave the 13 colonies some autonomy but essentially gave the parliament fiat power of the things that the colonists, uh, that, the, that the founders uh, would decide in, in, the, in the Congress that would be set up. So the founders, in, when that was proposed in 1775, they really didn't look at it very hard at all. It was quickly, quickly dismissed. And Ben Franklin, 
the next um, the next year, that Galloway's Constitution was proposed in 1774. Benjamin Franklin had one proposed in 1775, but they avoided signing, trying to sign a constitution for many years because they thought it would be too explosive. That they would, they might break up over differences over the constitution. So that's why, of course, it wasn't until 1781 that they actually finally got a constitution, and that was the Articles of Confederation. And let me just leave it this way: it's remarkable. The vast majority of delegates in the Continental Congress who were responsible for launching the nation into independence in 1776, they all believed they should get a constitution first and then a declaration of independence. Why didn't they do it that way? It was just too explosive. Signing a constitution was far too explosive. They did not want to give sovereign state power to any centralized form of government or confederation. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, you know, one thing I think about um, when I think about the founding fathers is kind of the like we've touched on it a little bit, but just the dichotomy between their personal lives and and how they're like saying all men being created equal and all this. And but then also, you know, an enslaved person is worth three fifths of a person. And, you know, that's baked right into the cake. And, you know, I, I think a lot of that has to do with. Uh, I'm looking at the map at the beginning of your book here, uh, Virginia taking a pretty head seat at all of this with land claims and also primacy at these, you know, first meetings. And they're kind of allowed to lead the discussion. And I think it was kind of a, uh, and I think you kind of mentioned this in the book, it was kind of a way of heading off these other states feeling some type of way about the differences they had and letting Virginia uh, take the lead and uh, just talk about kind of Virginia's uh, outside influence on both the slavery question and, uh, you know, uh, other matters, economic and otherwise. Well, it's interesting you brought up the map there. And if I'm, if I'm thinking correctly, the map you're referring to, it's, it's a map that shows the, if we look at the map today, you see Virginia, relatively large state that's, you know, south of Washington, D.C. And but in the map that Rob's referring to, what you see is the state of Virginia is what it is today. Plus, you go across the Appalachian Mountains and you add all of Kentucky to the Virginia claim. Then you go ahead and move up and you add all of Ohio and all of uh, the states actually around the Great Lakes, extending all the way to Canada. So Virginia, based on its 1609 Royal Charter, had a land claim that was stunning. And interestingly enough, in 1783, the Secretary of Congress a really smart man who was once called a man of truth, um, Charles Thompson, he was from Pennsylvania. He was the secretary of the Congress. He actually, in a series of letters to his wife, and this is 1783 is the year that we finally signed the Treaty of Paris, ending the war. He said, uh, very pessimistically, he looked forward and he did not see that these 13 uh, states were going to remain united for too long. And I just, and it's, Virginia will come up as I'm describing this, he said, I think this whole thing's going to break down into probably three or four separate countries. They call them confederations, but that's how they viewed it. And he said one of them was going to be New England because the New England colonies were the most tight-knit. They had the most in common. But remarkably, he said, there's a problem, though, with just New England forming its own separate confederation. And that is they are not going to rest until they have control of the, of the, of the Hudson River. And so, again, to conjure up the map in everyone's mind, the Hudson River lies within the state of New York, 50 miles from, the, from New York's border, borders with, um, with, uh, between New England and New York. 
And so he said that first confederation was going to either be uh, New England plus New York through diplomatic means they were going to unite or that New England was going to have to invade uh, New, New York in a civil war in order to actually force them into its confederation or at least force enough of New York that would comprehend uh, control over the Hudson River. So that's the first confederation. Second confederation will bring in Virginia. But the second confederation he said is going to form is a, is a confederation of the middle states. And that is Pennsylvania, New York, uh, Delaware, uh, New Jersey. He said they're going to form for self-defense. And he said, well, they're also going to want to spread westward and claim some of the land that over the Appalachian Mountains or, or towards the Mississippi River. But he said the problem they're going to find there is Virginia is not going to uh, be in a generous sharing spirit when it comes to all the Western lands that the 13 states won together due to the map you, you referred to, the 1609 Charter. So that would be one place where they would have civil war uh, was be the Trans-Appalachian West, at, and they would be fighting against the third confederation that Charles Thompson predicted, and that was the state of Virginia alone. It would be a freestanding state, and he said it might actually be a monarchy. And why did he say that? Because um, of two couple of things, the grandiosity of Virginians, but also the, the economic system, the slave system that existed, and simply he thought of it as an aristocratic, aristocratic a feudal uh, a government. The last confederation, he said, might be in some ways these other three southern states beneath Virginia. He just didn't know what would happen to North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. One reason, he said, is because that South Carolinians are so hot-headed, they are so volatile and unpredictable, that they, I'll paraphrase, he said, they will never voluntarily submit to join any confederation until they are humble, humbled by civil war. So that was a more broad way of answering your question about Virginia that, that gives your listeners an opportunity to really see how profoundly in the founding generation, the formation of one United States was not inevitable. It took enormous work. And I'll, 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 I'll end this comment by saying that, again, the dominant theme of the book is, well, one reason they hung together is because if they broke apart, they were going to kill one another in civil wars. But they also practiced within the corridors of the Continental Congress, they practiced civic virtue. They, they had ethical behavior. They practiced civility, respect. They tried to understand one another. They socialized together. And they were cooperative. And they compromised. They didn't always compromise, but sometimes they did. So it's these two things, do or die, or join or die mentality as to why they formed one country. And the other was they did practice some uh, civic virtue and ethical uh, behavior. Right. And uh, on the note of that uh, join or die uh, flag, it's, it's always interesting to see how the smaller New England states are smushed together in that, and they're just New England. <laughs> It's like they can't even be bothered to have a separate Rhode Island segment as opposed to Connecticut as opposed to. Well, you should, you should elaborate on that. I, I, people should understand that you're absolutely right. So he is talking about the famous um, Benjamin Franklin cartoon that was first actually used uh, at the time of the Albany Congress um, leading up to the French and Indian War in the 1750s. At that time, uh, Franklin and others called the colonies to unite um, in order to fight, in this case, not the British, but to fight against French and their Native American allies. And so one way they did that was they tried to show, they, didn't, they wanted to demonstrate the dangers of, a, of, of fragmentation and disunion. So what Rob is saying is that all of the different colonies at that time in the 1750s and thereafter, they got their own little segment of the rattlesnake. However, 
New England got one segment. It didn't break them down. It got one segment, and it was the head and the teeth and the tongue of the rattlesnake. I, I'm glad you reminded me of that, Rob. I actually have not been talking publicly about that very fact, but that captures the viewpoint of most of the uh, Americans at this time of the fierceness and, and unity of, um, of New England. And to just say one more word, one reason that New England was so feared and fearsome was it was the most merchant-oriented or ship-oriented, I should say ship-oriented uh, segment of the original 13 colonies. And that meant that it could form a Navy. And, and have, be able to, the ability to form a Navy was the real secret to independence back in the 1770s and 1780s, because navies were much more important to uh, the sovereignty of a nation even than, than a standing army, or even than, than the military, military forces. Right. And, um, you know, I think that leads into why our system today, and I definitely want to bring this to today because obviously the echoes of this are still, um, you know, reverberating, but, you know, each state getting one vote in things, you know, or to, you know, a la the Senate, you know, well, I guess two votes that, you know, but, you know, the, the inequities here are, are staggering. Now we, you bring it to today where, you know, Wyoming has two senators and so does California. So does Texas. So does New York. You know what I mean? So does Rhode Island. You know, it's like, uh, you know, at the time it was like, I think I, I'm going to mess the statistic up, so I'm not going to say it exactly. But I believe at the time of the, the, revolution that the difference in population was like 17 to one. And now it's, it's many times that, uh, you know, as far as uh, unequal representation goes, that also goes into the three fifths compromise, why that was made, why, why we had the electoral college. Um, just, I mean, speak a little bit about that because that was a huge point of contention that led to some serious consequences for everyone later on what they decided on. Well, yes, we've been for, 50 or more years in a, in a phase of our history, our political history, where um, there's a great emphasis on democratizing everything. And uh, I mean, the, the value of democracy within our larger constitutional democracy based on separation of powers and checks and balances, there's, there's a sense that if everything you look at doesn't glisten with perfect democracy, then it therefore is, is bad and not, um, and corrupt or, or somehow anti-democratic. The key thing to understand is that back at the time of the Philadelphia Convention that drafted the Constitution, that there were small states and there were large states. And not only that, there was just a sense of state sovereignty that, that what mattered was not actually the population within the state. It was that each state, so each of the 13 states should have equal voice within the government they were forming. And there's, there's a lot of logic to that, in fact. So other people thought, well, no, we want to create a federal government that is based on proportional representation and representatives in government that's similar to our, our state assemblies or what was formerly their colonial assemblies. So they simply struck a compromise there that helped to, uh, that gave all of the, so we, we could, if everybody's upset about the Senate not being democratic, we can at least understand that at that time, another concept we love, which is equality. They, many of them argued we want equality of vote among the 13 states. So they had a lot of terrible fights about this. So they formed a compromise. They said one house is going to be, uh, the House of Representatives is going to be based upon proportional representation um, of the, the people uh, by, by census in each state. 
And then the other will be, according to this idea of equality of each of the states in the union, and that's where you get the Senate. So uh, I, I fully understand, I'm not as worked up as most people about the fact that the, the Senate is, represents the states, not necessarily the people of the states. That could lead us into a very long uh, dialogue about uh, democracy and the centrality of democracy. But again, I would repeat, there's something else that is as central as democracy in the formation of a constitutional democracy, or more than one thing, constitution for one, but checks and balances. Democracy must always have checks and balances. If you go back to the period of, of, of Greek democracy and then the Roman Republic, what you find, in fact, is that one of the most dangerous forms of government is pure democracy, where there's no checks and balances. What you get is demagogues, there's a little contemporary um, relationship to what I'm saying. What you get is demagogues who go in practicing fear-mongering, hate-mongering, bigotry, and disinformation, and they can end up getting elected, and that, that can end up tipping into authoritarianism or tyranny, as was well known to anybody who studied democracy of the past, including Alexander Hamilton, who said, be careful, because you can get a president who commences a demagogue and ends a tyrant. And again, that's something that we have seen in our country over the past seven years. Yeah, um, I think I wouldn't I wouldn't be so worked up over the Senate if there weren't all the other ways that things are unequal, unequal and and kind of the scale is already tipped. You know, we have gerrymandering. So the House isn't reflecting the you know actual will of the people in state houses. That's true, too. You know, we've got this situation that we have with the Supreme Court and what happened with Merrick Garland. Um, that was allowed to happen, making up rules as we go along with Mitch McConnell. And you know what I mean? Like there's all we got Citizens United. Money is speech. Corporations are people, you know, like with you know, the Senate by itself. Maybe if, if everything else being equal, I, I, I would be more sympathetic to it. But with everything else, I'm like, OK, and this, too. It's like, come on, <laughs> there's got to be some counterweight <laughs> somewhere, you know. No, I, I, all of the things you listed I, are, are, are areas of deep concern uh, for me as well and, and, and as essential to the operation of the constitutional democracy is I brought up civic virtue. I think I've said ethical leadership. You know, we could also reformulate those things into um, the idea of uh, democratic values. There's political democratic values such as equality and justice, constitutionalism and checks and balances. But then I think we often forget that essential to the functioning of democracy are core behavioral values of civility and decency and willing to talk together and willing to collaborate. And then we're at, when we're absolutely 100% opposed on things, simply the willingness to draw a line down the middle and to compromise. Uh, so I would in particular you know, state that we're at a place of great danger today, which I think most people would agree with, except for, uh, I, I think, not all Republicans, but some Republicans, the Republican Party has just become uh, so you know, activated by victory and winning that they're playing a lot of what's called constitutional hardball and not, not and absolutely violating these core uh, democratic behavioral values. And that leads to gerrymandering. So without good faith, democracy doesn't work. People think, well, it's just an adversarial system where you've just got to pit one person against the other and Somehow you'll get synthesis and you'll get a synthesis from the thesis colliding with the antithesis. Uh, but it actually doesn't work. It doesn't work without at least some core uh, measure 
of democratic behavioral values. Again, civility, respect, understanding, playing by the rules, acting in good faith. So when you brought up, uh, you know, Merrick Garland's rather absurd deferral in his appointment to the Supreme Court, that was an, that's an example of the failure of, of core democratic values and, and what's called, if anybody wants to research it, there's some good research papers out there called constitutional hardball. Other than the ways that we've already discussed, uh, what other ways would you highlight that this period in American history reverberates today and what can we learn from that time and to apply to you know the problems we face today? Well, I, I guess I would say that um, that they were deeply aware of and far more educated than we are today of the danger of demagogues. So if we, if we think about demagogues and demagoguery, in some ways they're the absolute opposite of, of civic virtue or core democratic behavioral values. So they were very careful and they would actively weed people out of the political system based on this danger of someone who would successfully gain power through demagoguery, fear-mongering, hate-mongering, disinformation, etc. Um, and they've also taught us, and the Civil War has taught us, that disunion leads to civil war. I think that's something important um, for us to understand today. But I think the thing that reverberates the most, uh, I think, is this question of why the founders perpetuated slavery. As some people know, we're, we're beginning to talk about and think about the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, which is going to be in 2026. And at, thereafter, there'll be various milestones that come up as well. What I would like to see happen between now and then is to celebrate many things. But I would like to see our American society really take up this question of why did the founders perpetuate slavery? And of course, the challenge is, 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 is people might go in and demagogue, demagogue that issue in a sad manner or or uh, they would become dominated by passions rather than sort of mutual uh, self-understanding. But I think there's a great opportunity there. And I've given some thought to, as part of the approaching 250th anniversary, I don't know what I'll do. I have a lot of, I have a lot of thoughts of things I could do, but the, I just think there's a kind of a campaign of let's talk about slavery. I think that's very important and, 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 and doubly important is when we do that, it has to be pretty essential that we recognize that history is complex and the reasons for the founders perpetuating slavery were complex so that all three of those models that I mentioned earlier, the systemic racism explanatory model, economic explanatory model, the survivalist model. So somebody might say, hey, I don't think one is true at all. That's fine. That's a good part of debate. But the real truth is, at least in my view, all three of them are correct. So we really need to begin to be able to move out of dualistic and, and, and absolute black and white thinking if we do that, we actually mature as a people. So I think there's a real opportunity for us to embrace complex history and specifically about this most painful, tragic part of our history, which is why the founders perpetuated slavery. So that's one, that's one thing uh, that's in the book that I would like to see continue to accelerate and be fostered for the, in the best interest of uh, race relations and history itself, both in our country. The thing I wanted to talk about was something we talked about last time, and I... Uh... I had a, I have a two month old baby, so I haven't been able to like, uh, talk with many other adults about this. So I, I wanted to talk about this with you because we talked about it last time, but there's been some movement in, uh, 
Trump indictment world, and uh, Jack Smith has has come out, uh, made a big showing. What do you make of this latest case, and do you think it's going to go anywhere? Which, which case are you referring to, the documents case? Uh, this, Yes, the one in South Florida, yes. Well, uh, yeah, it's going to go somewhere. There's no question. Uh, well, because ju- uh, Judge Eileen Cannon is uh, in charge of that, and she was a uh, appointed by Trump, okay. I believe, even after he lost the election. Uh, so, And she had several of her previous rulings overturned on appeal, but she looks like she's in it as the judge for the remainder. Maybe that means something, maybe it doesn't. It seems like it does to me, but... Well, I think you're right. I actually haven't thought through what are the repercussions of, of someone who is potentially a pro-Trump a judge o- overseeing this, this case. Certainly, it could have some detrimental uh, impact on the Justice Department's uh, side of the side of the aisle. Um, but I think, you know, I, a lot of people feel, obviously, that this case against Trump and the case in Manhattan against Trump and the indictment against Trump that's coming out of um, Georgia in the next several months, and also the indictment that almost certainly I think people seem to expect the, the indictment of Trump by Jack Smith's office over his uh, clear efforts to overturn the 2020 election. What I want to say about those things is all of those cases are just clearly tragic in many ways. And here, this is where we need to be able to get to complex thinking and our understanding of, of things in general. It, it is tragic, uh, but it's so necessary because con- the constitutional rule of law must must be the supreme power, the supreme force. And in some ways, it must be the entity or or concept or force within a society that wins out over lawlessness, corruption, and and, and demagoguery, and authoritarianism. So we have a situation on our hands that I believe is, is, is just, it's tragic, but necessary, but also the most tragic aspect of it. And uh, worrisome aspect of it is we have some certain large percentage of Republican, prominent Republican politicians who are uh, inveighing against the rule of law. And that is about the most dangerous thing that we can do. You, you, you could say that one, one or more of these cases is politically motivated. Okay, well, no, maybe it is. What percent? 20% politically motivated? 30%? They may be politically motivated, but this is the rule of law in operation. And we essentially, as a people, must stop and say, this is the rule of law. We can disagree with it. If it's the Supreme Court, you can want to replace some of the Supreme Court justices, but of course you can, or you can want to have 18-year term limits. But the real fact is, is that we must have faith in the judicial system and the rule of law. We have to inculcate that in others, even if we disagree with the rulings vehemently, vehemently. Uh, just the way the best example of that, and I think in recent memory, is, is um, Al Gore, when he disagreed with the ruling of the Supreme Court that ended up awarding the United States presidency to Bush, Gore actually went out, and I, I wish I could remember the exact words, but he went out and said, Bush is the next president of the United States. He quickly mentioned, I don't agree with the logic and jurisprudence of the Supreme Court's decision, but then he spent all his time talking about, we are a, a nation of the rule of law. We've gone to the top court in the nation. That court has rendered its decision. 
I'm going to stand down. I congratulate George Bush on being the next president of the United States. I mean, this is stuff that should bring us to tears today. I mean, that was that was just the nature of the way our government worked up until Donald Trump. So how we get back to that, I'm not certain, but that is what we need to get back to. Oh, yeah, there's so many things I agree with in what you just said. And I do think that Republicans are totally blind and they're just in a gang mentality uh, and they don't really seem to understand that, you know, Trump has been committing white collar crimes for decades and he just happened to join your team a few years ago. And, you know, maybe it is politically motivated, like you say, maybe he's also just somebody who doesn't follow the law. <laughs> like maybe that's just the way he operates and he happens to play for your team right now. And, you know, I know that must seem, you know, it's just like maybe you should look at what actually happened because he's broken the law so many times and you know to defend that is unconscionable and it's really scary like you said so um, yeah i mean obviously that's that's our greatest worry i mean just imagine this you know rob i mean how much would we be worrying about this human being named donald trump mm-hmm. if if the republican party if he, he if through through his extraordinary demagogic skills he had not converted the republican party into a cult of personality right so the problem is that we really need to think of the, the problem of American society today is, I hate, to, I hate to say it's not Donald Trump. I mean, it is, but it isn't. The greatest problem we have is our, is our political institutions. And the political institutions I would draw the greatest attention to are uh, the Republican Party for co-opting and tolerating Donald Trump and not through, through virtue and, and ethical leadership saying no to him from the very beginning. And then also the Republican Party um, nominating him as their candidate for president. In some ways, it's not their fault, because in the early 1970s, we converted our presidential nominating system for one where, where the party had extraordinary power. That constitute the, 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 every four years, um, Republican National Convention and also the Democratic National Convention had the power, actually, to create a platform and then select a nominee. And then it went to... To, to, to point out another area of the worst outcomes of democracy in our society right now is we have no checks and balances in the emergence of, of demagogues and authoritarians into the presidential pipeline. Very dangerous situation. We've learned that with Trump. If, if we had had the old, old school method of a presidential nominating system, Trump never would have become president of the United States. Republicans in 2016 if the convention had been filled with delegates who were free to vote in the, in the, the way they wished, most, I think, thoughtful scholars and observers know Trump never would have been president. So you'd have the check and balance of the Republican National Convention to uh, nominate someone other than Trump. And the last institution I would say that's failing, uh, uh, not, not all aspects of it, but many, is the news media. And so just pointing out that, again, without Fox News and without a number of the, the, the other um, right-wing uh, uh, news outlets, radio and TV, Trump also never would have been uh, elected. So Trump's the problem, yes, but we have all of these enablers who are supposed to be guard dogs and checks and balances on against demagogues and authoritarians, and they failed pretty miserably. Absolutely. Well, um, thank you so much for coming back. Uh, definitely, I'd love to have you back another time, and I'm sure we'll have more to talk about. So everyone should read your book. So. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And people also, I've got some good stuff right now in my, my newsletter on Substack called American Commonwealth. 